Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Podcast, where we help you unlock your potential freedom through land investing, real estate investing, and entrepreneurship. Hey everyone, this is episode 80 of the Real Estate Investing Podcast, discussing the worst mistakes we have made in our land investing business. I'm your host, Daniel Apke, joined again by my brother and business partner, Ron Apke. Before we get into the show, let's go over a question from one of our featured Discord members. The question came from Discord. It's our free online community. If you guys want to check it out, go to landinvestingonline.com slash Discord to get in our free Discord with tons of successful investors. Question today is from Vince. How long did it take to get your first deal and what do you see the trend to be for getting your first deals? I just bought the course. I'm going in full force. Great nice. question. Yeah, really good question. That's exciting, Vince. Congrats on a investing in yourself and investing in the education. I think it, it matters your mindset. It sounds like you have a really good mindset on this. You can do it as in, in, in as short as 28 days, three to four weeks, and it can be as long as however long, however slow you do it. But realistically, if you go full force, I think you can send your first mailer between that eight to 12 day mark, and you can be maybe not own the deal by day 28, day 30, but you can be under contract. You could be, have something in title by that point. So it's not a hugely long process. It does take a lot of commitment at first to get to that point. But I, I think it can happen, Dan. Like I don't think I'm being too optimistic. I know we've had a student, a coaching student, Wayne, who did this very fast. He's already got multiple deals where he's going to make thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000. And he just got into his second month. So it's a, it's a mindset thing going into it. You got to really push to get within 30 days, but it is possible. I don't even know if you, yes, it's a push, but it's going to be a push either way. Like if you want to get your first deal under contract in 30 days, it's not that hard. I really believe that. Like Wayne took advantage. He got, I mean, when Wayne bought the course, he was ready to get rolling. So he started the education right away. Right. Um, so you got to think like if you send mail in your first seven days, and then it takes about 10 days to hit. That's 17 days. Then you have 10 to 12 days, Ron, to get the properties under contract from that mail hitting. It really, I don't think, is that far out, to be honest. I, If I were to start from scratch again, a whole new business, I guarantee you we'd have things under contract. And I feel like if if you guys were to just like listen to what we're saying and how this works, and I know there's hesitation and stuff, obviously, with any business. But if you dive in full force like Wayne, for example, and people who are really bought in, we see this time after time. And Wayne's a great example. We just talked to him last night. I said, Wayne, you brought us five to six deals the last couple of calls. How long have you been doing this? Three, four months is what I asked him. And he replied, he's like, this is my 30th day or something like that. He's done it 30 days and he has all these under contract. Um, so that's just one example. Wayne's not the only one I can promise you that who has done that. So that's just our, our answer for you. But really good question, Vince. And I'm excited for you. Let's get into the show. The worst mistakes we have made in our land investing business, Ron. Um, this is going to be a hot one, I feel like, because everyone wants to see the two, um, what you call land gurus is, is how people kind of look at us. And I don't look at it that way. But just like anyone else, Ron, we make mistakes. We constantly make mistakes. We're always making mistakes. We made bad mistakes at first. We bought bat some bad land. Um, we've also made a lot of business mistakes, I feel like, as well. So let's get into that. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, I like talking about this stuff because I don't want people like, yeah, we might be knowledgeable on this topic, but definitely not gurus. Like I learn from our community all the time, every single day. I'm constantly trying to teach myself more about land and learning different aspects of things, learning how to do things differently. But uh, like like I said, we've we've bought in properties that are questionable without a doubt. I want to kind of keep this maybe possibly from a beginner aspect, not necessarily hiring everything like that, Daniel. But do you want to get into what you have first? 
I, I, I can start if you want. Go ahead. Yeah. Sounded so like you wanted to. <laughs> so one of the things that we did early on, we're just constantly like learning different things we need to add to our due diligence list. And really the way you do that is by buying property that you maybe shouldn't have bought. And we had a property that we bought in a certain county and it turned out to be a literal landfill. Uh, so we bought 20 acres and 10 of the acres were landfill about 30, 40 years ago. When we did due diligence, we had some idea that it was possible that it was, but the county told us that we could still build on it. So after we bought it, the county's like telling these end buyers when we're trying to sell it, like, no, you can't build on this. So we had to go through a long process. We talked to the uh, EPA, right, Dan? Yeah. Yeah. So we talked to the EPA to see what we can do with it. Uh, they had to pull files from like 1950, 1960. And we actually ended up selling it. I think we bought it for 25 grand and sold it for like 40, $42,000, which is crazy. We made $15,000 on a landfill. It turned out one of the parcels, it was two 10 acre parcels. One of the parcels was an active landfill, uh, whatever, 30 years ago. The other one was not. And it was a far enough distance away that we could build or that our end buyer could build on that other 10 acres. So we kind of got saved by that. It could have been pretty bad, Daniel. Like if both of those were not buildable, it, I, I don't know where we would have ended up. Maybe we would have been able to break even, but that due diligence is constantly like a learning topic for me personally. Yeah. So not doing enough due diligence would be that topic. And we, um, we had the legal description said something about being a trash infill or Landfill. something. Uh, Landfill. Yeah. Um, it did mention that, but we didn't do enough due diligence on that period. And we thought one of them could be built on because, um, I guess we could kind of see from satellite round, from what I remember, you could see the landfill and people are probably thinking a landfill, like some open, some open, you know, dig out where people are just throwing trash and stuff, but it, it's a 20 year, 30 year, 40 year old landfill guys. So there's trees on it. There's not much um, other than just new trees and plants, new forestation, I guess you would call it. So that's a really was the only sign from a visible standpoint. The land was really, really nice and we still made money on it. But that due diligence period, we've come a long way and the market was so hot then. I feel like that was part of it too. If we bought something like that in a down market where there's a ton, ton of land on the market and everyone's dropping their price and things are sitting a long time, we might've been screwed in that situation. Luckily, we got at cheap enough price to be able to sell it and make $20,000. I think we sold it for 45,000 run. Yeah, well, I think we bought it for 25, 26 after closing costs or something like that. But it was definitely uh yeah, it was a closed off landfill. It was the the concern wasn't in the land at all. Like we didn't see there's no visible trash. The concern was digging a well, getting a septic system, especially digging a well cuz all the contaminants uh, that could get in there if you dig a couple hundred feet down. So that was probably the biggest concern that we constantly had buyers and we had so many buyers on that property, like back out, like, yeah, we made 15, $18,000, but it was a headache the entire time. But like I said, we ended up making money and we learned the, uh, we learned something in the process to add to our due diligence part. And we did, instead of just overlooking it, if we got a piece of property like that now, we would probably negotiate significantly down for one Dan. And we would also, uh, I'm sure just know more exactly what could be done with the property. Well, what happened was we, like Ron said, had to talk to the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, and they actually sent us a zip file of the maps of where the landfill was. 
So we dug that up and this was a process like they had to mail it. This is four months of work that we're talking about. This did not happen overnight. Um, so they had to mail us the thumb drive and do all kinds of different things. And then we had to go to, we tried to work with a third party. I remember Ron. Then after that, I got the local um, health department manager to finally work with me because they were telling all of our buyers, it's a landfill and you can't build on it. And then the EPA said it wasn't a landfill. So we're going back and forth trying to prove our documents to the local health department. So they were, and we ended up getting written um, proof that you could build on it on that Northern parcel. So we just had to do a lot of due diligence and make up for that. But the next one I have Ron, and I think this is kind of for beginners, kind of not, but we answered calls ourselves for way too long, I think. And it took a lot off the actual business and pricing and sending mail and getting our systems in place and whatnot. We were answering. So, and we would miss calls too. Like we would miss, we would be busy in our lives, be at, you know, just doing everyday things, not be able to answer our calls all the time, but we answered our calls for a very long time, Ron. Yeah, for sure. That's a, that's a good point. I, I had that down kind of, but I, I didn't think about the time frame that we'd done it. It's really hard to scale. Like it was just Dan and I for a good year or something, maybe four, I don't know, eight to 14 months. It was just Dan and I before we hired someone and answering those phone calls, Daniel did most of it, but I know he missed phone calls. I know he missed potential deals. And then it was hard for me to increase the volume of mail I was sending because we were so, it was so time consuming for Daniel on that sales aspect versus if you use an answering service, maybe 20, 30, 40% of the calls you need to call back, Dan, opposed yeah. to having to call back or talk to every single person who's yelling at you and just not happy. You just have so to talk to 25 calls. Exactly. So many wasted minutes and then it just breaks up your day. It makes it really, really difficult. I do think the experience was uh, not eye-opening, but just it was a very valuable experience talking to them, learning how to speak to them, uh, learning how to close deals. Maybe we got a few extra deals by answering the calls ourselves, but it really made it tough to scale. It definitely was a good learning experience. I don't know if you need 12, 14 months of that, but you know, if you want to answer calls for the first couple months, go for it. It, it will, it does break your day up. If you're pricing, say you're pricing and doing valuable stuff, you're going to get your call at random times. It's going to break up your concentration, your focus. That was like the big thing for me. I would be on, I remember your stories, Ron, like being on the bus driving, coaching and stuff and being able to answer the calls while you were driving the bus or sitting on the bus or whatever you're doing and answering from your other job and whatnot. So it kind of was a fun process, really good learning experience. But going back, I would have outsourced that much sooner. The hesitation is always the fear of spending money. Pat Live costs per minute. That's the fear of spending money. That's what it was. I'm sure if it was free, Ron and I would have done it much earlier. We just, I really think with the amount of minutes and mail we were sending out, we were just scared to spend that seven, eight, nine hundred dollars on Pat Live. Yeah. And we spend that on answering service. It's probably nine, it's probably eight to a thousand right now, eight hundred dollars to a thousand. But it definitely adds up. That's all I had to talk about in terms of that one, Daniel. I wonder if you have this one down, but I know it's a huge one. Like one of the biggest things that I see from beginners is overanalyzing deals without purchase agreements and even worse, overanalyzing deals before they talk to the seller. So if you are using an answering service, you get these calls in and you have like, you just look at the deals before calling them back. And it's just insane the amount of time that is just spent and wasted at the end, just make the phone call and talk to them and see their mindset. 
And then let's say that maybe they want to negotiate. Then you can look at the land and be like, okay, this is pretty good land. Maybe I can go up a little bit. But overanalyzing in general without an agreement or without even talking to them on the phone is it just it's a it's a time uh, it's a time pit and like it can take your entire day if you start doing that with every deal. Yeah, that's a really good point. And like Bron said, all of this is from what we learned and we would analyze. We'd put think so far in the future. We'd have one call and it sounded kind of promising. And you know, next thing you know, we're thinking of how much money we're going to be making off this one deal and getting all excited. And then they never call us back or we can't get a hold of them or whatever it is. And we wasted five hours due diligence. I have the deed pulled by this time. I'm looking at all the map, plat maps and all this stuff, talking to the counties and whatnot. So just get the purchase agreement before you start all this. Obviously, if you have a million dollar property, it's going to be a little bit different. But for 99% of you who don't have million dollar plus properties, get the purchase agreement before you start doing all this work. We see our our coaching members are good because we really tell them this when they're when they send us deals that they don't have. I don't look at it that much because now I'm wasting their time and my time and showing them that they should be doing this instead of them just getting the purchase agreement and sending it to us when we have it. So that's that's huge, Ron. I did not have that down, but I think that's one of the hardest things to overcome in this business, especially at first when you're slower. Mm-hmm. And you want to think so much about the potential of a deal. At the end of the day, there's no potential unless you actually get that agreement or have that phone call with them or something like that. And there's so much more value in you sending your next mailer opposed to you overanalyzing a deal where you don't have a contract. So it's a, and like this, this episode's about us, Dan. So I want to keep it on track. Like this was something that we up till probably a year ago that we really struggled with. And I constantly was kind of looking at just what calls come in. Cause it's Daniel's responsibility to call them back when we didn't have a salesperson. And I would just like, look at the calls and see what deals we have. And just all, uh, it's just all potential at the end of the day. There's nothing actually there sufficient. So just spending your time on what is valuable is the lesson that I learned from that. Yeah, my my next one, Ron, that I have on here kind of goes with pricing. I think it's for beginners too, just not understanding how to remove bad comps and just really inaccurate pricing. I mean, it's a major mistake. We try to we teach that as best as we can in our course. We have an advanced pricing module and a regular pricing module, but there are so many bad comps on the module or on the um, MLS and Zillow and whatnot that you have to figure out how to filter through those bad comps. I feel like that is such a, it's more of a science than, or it's more an art than a science run. And it's more of a feel like just looking through, seeing that that one's a riverfront property, seeing the other one's landlocked. Maybe it's going for a third of the riverfront or a fourth of the riverfront property, seeing the different attributes and access and everything just from scrolling really quickly and then going through making sure it was actually listed properly it was pending sale and it was sold going through all of those checks and balances i think ron is one of the harder things to get over for sure and getting that we talk about it quite a bit like everyone's concerned about the offer percent or what what percent they're offering at the end of the day that doesn't matter at all if your market value is incorrect and when we first do it like the mistakes that i made personally pricing was I would try to price at whatever 35, 40% of market value. Uh, I would look at it a couple of weeks later when I start getting calls back, like no one wants to sell. Wow, that's crazy. I would look at it like, wow, I'm way underpriced. I thought I priced at 40%. This is pricing at like 15, 20%. So that is a huge thing. And all that is, is what Dan was talking about, getting rid of bad comps, getting rid of that four acres 
that is a comp for $8,000 when really everything for four, that's four acres is selling for $35,000, $40,000. That $8,000 comp is going to pull your market value way down and screw up your pricing. So it's a, it's a, it's a huge learning curve. It is extreme. It's way more difficult. Uh, it's easier said than done, I think, to actually do that and to do that in your mailers because sometimes there's not that many good comps, Daniel. But taking the using the good comps and avoiding the bad comps is crucial in pricing accurately. Yeah, pricing, getting deals back, figuring out what you're going to list it for, everything. I mean, it's the naming. Uh, we always say the hardest part of this business, Ron, is being able to say yes or no to a property. This is the first step, understanding what a property is actually going to sell for and what we're actually going to be able to list it for and get some movement on it. The next one I have, Ron, curious to see your opinion on this, is really relying on realtors too much. We see that a lot. And I probably four or five months ago, I may have not said that, but just looking at our Discord comments and the feedback you gave um, from the recent realtors as well and our experience with that, I feel like that can be a pretty major hurdle to overcome because once you realize that realtors don't have the same techniques we do for pricing, we're much better at pricing than realtors. I mean, there might be some out there, but I just feel like we're much better, Ron. Exactly. Use use realtors for demand. And what I what I want you to do before you make any realtor call, let's say you have 10 acres or something, you need to know what you think that's going to sell for. And if the you want to get a price opinion from a realtor and they tell you it's let's say you say it's 10 acres and you think it's going to sell for $80,000. If you go to a realtor and they tell you 140, sometimes they're just going to tell you good things just to make you feel good. Um, and then they're going to get you under contract and they're going to sell it for $80,000. But if they tell you $140,000, just tell them like, oh, really? Like, can you send me some comps kind of supporting that? That's what I ask these realtors to do. If they tell you $40,000 on that same property, okay, really? Can you send me some comps on that? I'm curious to where you're getting your numbers from. And that's how I word it. I try to be pretty, I don't try to act like I know exactly what it's going to sell for because I don't at the end of the day. And maybe they can find some comps like, listen, this is a really hot area. There's nothing really for sale. I think it's going to sell... I, I see comps at eighty, ninety thousand dollars, but I think it's going to sell for one hundred twenty thousand dollars because there's no, there's no, there's nothing we're competing with. All right, that's a really good explanation. But if they don't have anything to sell you or anything to tell you, um, that's when I really start questioning them. But you got to have your price point going into it. You can't just like blindly believe what they're saying. And I feel very strongly about this, Daniel. Well, yeah, there your two experiences recently on how they thought it was going to sell for one third of what it was actually what what it was actually were under contract for it. Now they thought it, they would list it and sell it for a third of that. It just shows they're um, they don't know that the problem with realtors is they all have their way of doing things and they'll look at the MLS and they go back a lot of them, Ron. I've seen go back like four or five years, um, and I can think of a few off the top of my head that just went so far back. Yes, it might be right down the road, but it was five years ago. Whatever that situation is, like they're not, and it's much easier to comp houses because how much data there is. This is land. There's scattered data throughout a county. A lot of these counties have very little data, as you guys are probably aware of if you're in, in the community and whatnot, but there's just so many different things that they they use that we kind of avoid. Um, we find, like Ron says, we like to find a few really good comps local to that area, a few really good similar like comps local to that area rather than just scatter them out through the county and whatnot. Um, but that's all I had, Ron. What else did you have? No, I mean, that's pretty much it, honestly. I'm trying to think. I think one thing that we struggled with or 
not necessarily, it kind of goes with the comps thing, but dragging your feet to like send your first or second or third deal to title. That's something we did struggle with. I remember saying no to good deals. It is hard. Like at the, it's our first few deals. Like they were absolutely home run deals because we said no to our first like singles and doubles that could have been buy for 10,000, sell for 22, 24,000. We waited till we got a deal that there's just no way you could say no to. And I see a lot of people just like, you buy for 25,000 and it looks like comps are 47 to 55. Like that's a good deal. Let's get that thing to title. Obviously do your due diligence, but don't drag your feet. And we talked about Wayne a little bit and, and I don't want, he's still got a lot of way to go and everyone really does, um, but he's still got a ton to learn, but his action and just getting things onto the next step, like that's what you need to do when these are, when you get these deals that look pretty good. Cause I'm telling you, it's not going to be fun when you finally say yes to a deal. You talk to the seller. They're like, "Never mind, I'm selling to someone else." Or, "Never mind, I don't want to sell this." Or, "Never mind, I have a realtor that wants to represent me, and they think they can sell it for X." Because those, as time passes from when you get that agreement, the longer the time passes, the better chance you have of losing that deal because the seller is backing out. The faster you can go get it, the title, get it closed, the fast, the better chance, the higher percent of close you're going to have. So, I think that's a really good learning experience for these people, and it's something that we struggled with again up to like a year ago 18 months ago yeah it's hard but when like ron's saying once you make that decision you know you're going to send it to title get moving on it you know you want to buy it get moving on it don't let things sit you always want the deals moving in the process whether you need a plat map go get the plat map you need uh to call the health department see if there's a septic permit or anything in history on it do that whatever the next step is in the process make sure you're getting that so you can move the deal forward when deals sit that's um just what, what's it called, Ron? The analyzation paralysis, analyze, what is it? Yeah, something like that. I don't I don't know exactly, but yeah, something like that. Just paralysis. If you're just sitting there so, still, if you're not moving forward, yeah, it's that's when you get screwed. Yeah, exactly. So make sure, make a decision, use your resources, figure out how to comp right. And when you do make a decision, keep moving that forward. That's all I have, Ron. Um, any last comments you want? No, I think that was good. And this is based on our mistakes. And there's sometimes when we, we really try to avoid these things. And I think we've done a pretty good job over the last 12, 18 months avoiding these mistakes. But it's something you guys can learn from us and based on what we did incorrectly to start. But it is, it's difficult, Dan. It really is because these are just, it's natural mistakes that just happen. Absolutely. Well, everyone, thanks again for joining. To get started and to unlock your potential freedom, visit landinvestingonline.com. We even have a free Discord where Ron and I are involved in a ton of other successful investors. Guys, if you got any value from this, please like and subscribe our YouTube channel, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever you guys are listening on, it means a lot. Other than that, thanks for joining and we'll see you guys next episode. Thanks, guys.